President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. We joined for some brief market commentary here from my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note that I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, and Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of sale or investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We have a really interesting show today. We have a returning guest, Alex Garevich. He's the founder and CIO of Hante Investments. I'm going to talk, spend the first half hour with Alex talking about his book, talking about his investment philosophies and what he thinks on the markets, really a, a cross-asset class view, which would be interesting. On the second part of the program, we're talking with John Martin, who is the CEO of Martin Advisory and Consulting Services, uh, somebody I've known for a while as well. And we're going to be looking forward to talking about John on his takes on the markets. But before I get to our guest, Professor, uh, thanks for joining us for some commentary here. It's uh, yeah. been a little bit tougher week in the markets. We're yeah. off our highs. Uh, we had a disappointing inflation number here. Maybe just get... Well, that depends on which side you look at it. Okay. That's <laughs> true, to, true to that. What's... Uh, maybe yeah, guess? Lots, lots of things happening. Well, welcome on this Good Friday. Um, for Europe and U.S., it's neither good or bad because the markets are closed. Uh, We'll wait for money. Yeah, the big surprise, a very weak CPI inflation report, the core number lower for the first time in seven years. Um, uh, we also have got retail sales, which came very close to expectations for March, so that didn't change the needle. Does this change the needle a little, a little bit? Um, this, this will come out when the PCE uh, deflator, which is what the Fed looks, comes out in a couple weeks, uh, that'll be reported uh, when GDP is reported at the end of this month. Um, uh, I would say the needle is moving from three, you know, increases this year down to between two and three um, at this point. Uh, we also have uh, the long bond, as you know, being very, very strong uh, with a yield of 223. No one expected it this this low at this uh, time. We had a weak uh, uh, March employment report, although some of it is certainly uh, weather-related. Uh, um, uh, so those, those things are, are cautionary. Now, now all, and, and by the way, first quarter GDP, um, although I, I see Bloomberg has it as 1.6%, actually, some of the people I follow that have been more accurate think it's less than 1% for the mm. first quarter. So we're going to have some weak news, um, and that might influence what's going to happen uh, in, in June. Uh, second quarter, by the way, is expected to be much better. A lot of this is inventory drawdown. We're still in the 2% uh, growth mode that we've been in all the time. And, of course, the big number which uh, all the hawks on the FOMC are going to talk about is, you know, getting down to 4.5% unemployment is way below their natural rate uh, where labor markets are supposed to tighten and uh, become uh, potentially inflationary. So there's so going to be a lot of discussion um, at the upcoming meeting. They're not going to do anything in the April meeting, but it's in, in the upcoming meeting they're, they're certainly um, going to be uh, talking uh, about that. Uh, I think that's what it is is the market is disappointed at the pace of of Trump's proposals. It really wants corporate tax. Um, there were a lot of words that say that it's not going to come by August. It might be much later, and then that means it might not be for 2017. I talk about going back to the health care and solving that beforehand, even though as it's, unless it's radically changed, it really doesn't provide enough revenue to really expand the corporate tax cut. Anyways, I think they should leave that alone and go right to the corporate 
tax, which, again, they would have broad agreement on, uh, I think it's uh, basically disappointment. Also, the fact is, I mean, we, we talked about this, stock prices are high. Again, not relative to interest rates, but certainly on an absolute basis. Um, first quarters, uh, we're just beginning to get some of the banks. They're okay. Uh, but first quarter GDP at 1% is not going to provide a lot of real strong earnings, in my opinion. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's still a look towards the future. Uh, the, the big news, of course, is that uh, something that presidents are not supposed to do, which is to comment on what the, what, whether they think the dollar is too high or too low, of course, uh, you would expect Trump to break the, uh, all sorts of precedent on that. And he said, I think the dollar is too high, at, at which point it sharply dropped. I, actually, what has interested me most about that is that virtually every economist says that if we have a border adjustment to tax, tax, which of course is one of the proposals floating around in the House of Representatives on corporate tax reform, that would make the dollar much, much stronger. So in a way, by him saying the dollar is stronger, uh, too strong, it, uh, it, it sort of signals that he's not going to be in favor of border adjustment uh, taxes. Also, by the way, he refused to label, as we all know, China as a currency manipulator. Actually, there's a kind of a maturing going on in the Trump administration and you know, downplaying Bannon's role, um, becoming more moderate on all of these things. And we've talked about this. He now knows he has to deal with the courts and he has to deal with Congress. Uh, it's, he's not a CEO of the U.S. that can make unilateral decisions. And uh, I think we're seeing the effect of that in the uh, moves that he is making. Yeah, a lot of people saying, talking about the uh, you know, last week, uh, I remember you, you, you mentioned you thought he was going to get some benefits from the Syria uh, mm-hmm. uh, actions. You know, we, he's doing a lot of 180s on a lot of policies, whether it's whether it's the, uh, you know, calling China currency manipulator. It will be interesting, you know, how, how we deal with the, the current discussions with North Korea. Any sense of, of where, how that's playing out? Is, do you think what he did with, with China and Syria was a message for North Korea? I mean, what's your Yeah, I mean, there? there's, you know, there's, there's some experts say a little unpredictability. It's a good thing. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, we saw what happened with Obama of course, Obama was in a situation where he had to get, he decided to go to Congress for approval, and Congress wouldn't give him approval. And uh, Trump said, "Oh, I don't need approval for this. I'm just going to throw some rockets there." Um, uh, and I think he did get a bump, actually, upward on that uh, move. That, that's that's very very temporary. I think more imp- I'm more impressed by his moderation on some of these economic. I mean calling for more minor changes in NAFTA, not throwing it out, um, uh, again, not going against China. I mean, that decision was probably made in the, in, in the discussions that uh, he had with Chinese leaders last week. Um, he's, uh, be- I think he's beginning to learn the limits of his role, and, and these limits are molding him into a more traditional Republican um, rather than a populist, and uh, that is ultimately good for the markets. But the frustration at the pace um, at which he's getting things done uh, and the worry that corporate tax reform may be delayed substantially I think is a uh, major reason for the um, downward drift that we saw last week. Well, Professor, thanks for, for jo- joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, great. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation. I know our next guest has a lot of views on all of these issues. Alex Garavich, he's the founder CIO of Hante Investments. I hope I got the pronunciation right there, Alex. Welcome back thank to our you. program. Thank you. It's great to be back. So uh, before I, I mean, we there's a lot of topics we can talk about. A lot of these different market views. And uh, at Hante, you trade a lot of these different assets from from stocks, commodities, currencies, rates. Uh, I think across asset classes, you do a lot of different different views. Before we get to like specific views, maybe just um, 
sort of describe, uh, you know, your background. You, you traded uh, global macro at J.P. Morgan uh, before you founded your own personal family office that you turned into Hante. You know, just for our listeners, maybe describe who are the types of investors that that Hante is attracting to, and what you're trying to accomplish for people who might might want to follow you after listening in. Well, um, what I'm doing right now is really is as you mentioned, as an extension of my family office that I've been running for several years, my own money. And basically, right now, what I'm creating is something which is attractive for, mostly attractive for family offices, that is for people who wanna, want their money to be run as if, it, as if it is my own money, which is very different from institutional investors who need to check a lot of boxes and create what I call an illusion of prudence. Rather, what I try to create is a strategy which makes money over the long run, not not trying to dampen short-term volatility, but look for trades and situations which uh, lead to long-term success. And one of the things that I've described, maybe the main focus of my book, The Next Perfect Trade, has been the idea that there are certain trades which are ex-ante, good trades, and there are certain trades which are ex-ante bad trades. And it doesn't actually mean that good trades always make money. Poker players know very well that you could have really good cards, but you could get outdrawn on the last card. It doesn't mean that you played badly. It's, but in poker, it's very easy to evaluate those things. You can always tell when who's yeah, the yeah. favorite if you look at the cards, right? You could just can calculate the probabilities. Uh, in markets, it's harder. So what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to set a system of parameters which classifies what kind of trades make money more often than other kinds of trades. And these are the trades that I'm looking for. So I'm trying not to uh, put all my faith into some particular economic forecast, but rather put my faith in trade construction. No, I liked what you talked about, uh, how you think about building your portfolio just to make money, uh, your own personal money, what you're trying to do to, to grow it. What's you know the, the limit, you think, from institutional investors who largely have the same goal, but then they benchmark themselves into all these benchmarks that dictate a, a fixed set of allocations? And how would you say your portfolio is going to differ from these traditional benchmarks you know, the most often? Well, I think uh, this is a good point. I don't really benchmark myself to anything. I just try to make money. I'm not trying to uh, perform as other global macro portfolios are performing. I'm not trying to perform as S&P 500 is performing. I'm just doing what I think makes money most. So I'm just looking for any opportunity to make money, and I am not so worried about uh, what is going to be my performance on a given month or quarter, which I think is a strong concern for institutional investors. I am just looking for trades that make money in the long run. And it is pretty amazing what I found over my career that if you're looking to predict market for the next day, if you're really good, you're going to be right 52% of the time. But there are trades which have over 90% chance of winning on a five-year horizon. Hmm. Routinely, that's not even a strange thing to have something which has, gives you more than 90% chance of being right. And routinely, I talk to other traders and they say things like, oh yeah, of course in five or 10 years, this will go up, but today it's volatile and uncertain and I'm staying out of it. And for me, this is exactly like the best tasting candy. When I hear that there is a trade that will make money in the long run and you don't have to be a genius to know that, but uh, people are staying out of it because of current uncertainty, that's when I want to get in. So I know one of the, well, maybe I should just ask it blankly without directing you. Is there one of your trade that dominates them all today? Is that one, you know, you say your highest probability chance of success with uh, that, that you look at across the different asset markets? I think it's just being long U.S., long bonds. Long bonds. So avoiding the Trump uh, rise in rates, just being long bonds. Just long bonds. I have been long bonds for the last several years consistently. I have reduced to decreased position depending on situation, depending on whether they looked expensive like after Brexit or really cheap like this winter. But yes, U.S. long treasury bonds. I think this is a trade which will have very hard time losing money over the long run. Hmm. So at, at, at some point, do you believe that they do bottom out? Do you have like a, when you think about how long you want to stay in this for, 
Um, do you think? Do you have a? You know, the rates are going to go to zero. They're going to go to negative, like we see over in Europe, Japan. Um, how do you? How do you think about that? There are several things that might cue me into this being the end, and none of those things are even close to transpiring yet. But fundamentally, if you forget about economics and just think about mathematics, as long as we have upward sloping yield curves, which I think are fundamental economic fallacy, I don't think there is any reason for yield curves for longer-dated treasuries to yield more than shorter-dated treasuries. Once you go past five-year horizon, because in the short horizon, there is a matter of policy. Obviously, as the previous guest said, Fed is likely to tighten rates, more likely to tighten rates than to ease rates over the next few months. So you have some yield curve projection based on short-term policy perspective. But once you go out there, you have to be agnostic about rates going up or down. And the history of 40-year pattern shows that they're more likely to go down than up. So as long as you have upward sloping yield curves, when you are long, long bonds, you're, you're earning money on carry. You're also earning money on convexity because given the, on a large scale moves, you actually more, make more money on the upside than on downside. And you're earning money on having additional event risk protection and negative beta. So you get something which actually protects your stock portfolio or any other portfolio of risk assets while paying you money. So it is really hard for me to describe how amazing, how bountiful the trade of being US US Treasury bonds was over the last decades. I don't think there's been anything like this in the history, such a bonanza of wealth. You basically are being continuously paid money to protect your portfolio. And I don't see this scenario yet going away because we still have that so-called risk premium in the yield curve where the yield curve is upward sloping, in my opinion, for no particular reason. And you just basically keep getting paid to protect yourself. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Alex Gurevich, who's the CIO of Hante Investments, uh, and talking about his sort of most high conviction trade as being being long bonds uh, on this upward sloping yield curve and just sort of rolling it down the curve, collecting the carry. Um, now, one of the things you do, you know, carry ends up factoring into a lot of your decisions across some of the other markets, and so interest rates is one of your big positions. You, you talked about in your your investor letter from from last year that currencies was a major contributor to your profit and losses last year. Maybe let's talk about how carry factors into your, your interest uh, from, from, you know, into the currency market and, and how you're thinking about the, those markets today. Yes. Uh, carry does factor in. And interestingly, while people talk about U.S. dollar having low yields, it is actually one of the highest yielding currencies currently among their developed markets. And it's one currency in which the yield is actually keeps going up. So when you're thinking about even such a simple and standard cross as Euro-Dollar, you might think, oh, Euro is pretty, looks pretty cheap against Dollar. And indeed, if you look at historical average of Euro versus Dollar, it is uh, closer to 120 than to the current level of 106, 1.06, right? Uh, however, what I've been contesting, contending that actually euro is historically expensive. And the reason why it is expensive is that if you look at a 10-year forward, because of interest rate differential in terms of how much carry you can be collecting by being long dollar versus euro, given that Europe, dollar rates are positive and European rates are currently even negative, you actually get the forward closer to 130. So if you were to buy euro 10 years forward, you'd have to pay almost 130 for it, maybe like 129 as we speak right now. So, which is, it's pretty amazing, but if you actually factor in all this carry, if you take long enough horizon, you get results which are very different from the current results. It happens a lot with emerging market currencies. When you look at currencies which look to have performed really poorly, like Mexican peso or Turkish lira, if you think, okay, well, it looks like if I was long Turkish lira, I've been losing money and losing money and losing money. Say something like Turkish lira versus yen. Yen was appreciating, Turkish lira was depreciating. But if you 
factor in the interest you were earning on Turkish lira over the last, whatever, 15, 20 years, surprisingly, you come out ahead, not behind. Yeah. No, it's All a- the charts are looking very different when you factor in carry. So is that, um, I mean, the euro is a, is a currency I follow closely. I mean, at the 130 forward rate, and you look at it, what that averaged historically, I mean, is how do you, you know, we've, we've had Mark Chandler on our program below before who thinks that we can get back towards 85 cents on the euro. Um, is that something you would think is possible from, from the different moves here? I mean, how do you think that 10-year forward translates to, to a spot rate, or do you just mostly focus on the 10-year forward numbers? Well, I look at both. I do not uh, exclude the possibility of euro going to 85 cents. It's possible. I would not probably be riding it all the way down there. Uh, in currencies, I have this pendulum theory. When currency tends, it's like a pendulum. The further it swings one way, the more likely it swings very far the other way. So euro clearly was extremely strong in the previous decade. It had a recent bout of strength again. Only three years ago, euro almost touching 140 versus dollar, which was clearly way too strong given interest rate expectations. And that was one of the greatest trades of the last three years is to be short euro. I no longer think that short euro is the most superior trade, and we can go into that into more detail if you wish. But I have been riding this trade for three years. And... um, it is quite possible that even if you think that the price of euro is fair, it could swing very extremely in the opposite direction. Yeah, well, let's talk about how you would then, so your thought process on saying you think there's a now a superior trade to being short the euro. What would you say uh, is that, how do you evaluate what the superior trade possibilities? Well, the superior trade is what works in a broader range of economic outcomes. Uh, so, for example, at this point, I would rather be short Swiss franc than to be short euro. And one of the reasons is, is that I feel euro is currently under pressure from geopolitical concerns, which may play out in many ways that I cannot predict. Yeah. But it is also possi- possi- there is a possibility that um, economic data in Europe is um, turning up. And if we see tapering in Europe, well, we know what happened when there was tapering in the United States. It led to a huge rally in the dollar. Yep. And it did not really start till the tapering really started. They were all, like in 2013, there were all the clues for the dollar rally, but the really broad, and dollar rallied against yen, but the really broad dollar rally started in 2014. So I do not exclude the possibility of massive euro rally in the next two or three years. Mm-hmm. Not so enough to be long euro, but enough to be cautious about being short euro. And, and so the Swiss franc, is that one where you have, you know, the carry there is even more negative on the Swiss franc and you're, you're getting paid that additional carry interest rate differentials? Is that, is that part of the argument on the Swiss That's franc? That's part of the argument. And another part of the argument that Swiss franc is one currency which is not really... Overvalued, yeah. Overvalued or undervalued, sorry. Yeah. It's not undervalued. Like, unlike, unlike euro, it's very hard to say. Like, people are beginning to say that euro is cheap. Yeah. And even if you don't think that euro is cheap, you can at least hear some people saying it, you're not going to say that Swiss franc is cheap. No, that's the one, yeah, when, where some people say it's like 20% undervalued on the euro, you see more than 20% overvalued on the franc. I don't know the exact numbers in front of me. Yeah, but. something like that, right? And I mean, same arguments, I mean, this is just uh, not one place to focus. I mean, just giving it as a good example, you could make similar arguments about yen. Yen is neither here nor there, but the carry is still great against yen. And uh, we are seeing some signs of pressure on your Japanese stock markets coming from recent relative strength in yen, and sooner or later it will have to translate into easier policy there too. So this is what I'm looking for situations when uh, there is a broader range of success, and I'm trying to get away with situations which are more like gambling on geopolitical events or gambling on economic forecasts. And I think Europe is beginning more of a gamble, to, beginning to look like more of a gamble to me, like sure. you main your Eurozone. Hmm. Well, let me just reintroduce, I guess, one more time. We're talking with Alex Garevich, the CIO of Hante Investments. Uh, and so interesting, we talked a lot about so far bonds, currencies, where 
you know, carry becomes a big factor. Uh, and you also start off by saying there's a, there's a lot of trades, but you can see a 90% probability of being right over five-year horizon. We haven't really talked about equities yet. We know the equity has been pulling back a little bit this year, uh, just recently. What Any sense of, you know, what your high probability models are when you look about equities, what those signs are, are pointing to? I think that some of the, from, our, from my, what I've read from you, talked about interest rates being a, a key component there. Yes, definitely. And uh, when I appeared actually first time on this program, which was, I think, right around two years ago, yeah. I've been asked about my view on equity. And I said that my strategy dictates me to be bullish on equities for the reason that I saw positive momentum on interest rates. That is, since interest rates, I've described it in my book, since interest rates have fallen recently, that's usually a positive forward-looking uh, expectation for equities. And when I was pushed around, what would actually make me change my view and get cautious on equities? I said, well, a dramatic and sustained rise in, sustained rise in interest rates. And that's what we have observed over the last now half a year or even more than half a year because really the rise started last August. So the momentum on interest rates currently has turned negative. That to me, that is not a bad news for bonds. That's actually good news for bonds because interest rate momentum doesn't have predictive power for interest rates, but it has predictive power, in my opinion, for equities. So I am more cautious on equities than I've been since maybe the beginning of 2008. Hmm. So it's been about like nine years of, in the last nine years, I'm the most suspicious of equity market right now, if you wish. And the reason I'm sus- and the uh, and the reason I'm suspicious is for something that was mentioned earlier on the program that yes we have all those supposedly supposed measures from administration that may help equities but they still have to go through a lot of gate- gates those measures a they have to be really manned b they have to uh, pass Congress. C, they have to be implemented, and D, they have to have desired effects. By the time you go through all these logical gates, you have like only 10% of success. What is the reality, however, is the recent tightening of economic conditions associated with strong dollar and uh, high interest rates. That is the reality of the last several months. The The rest is speculation. And the recent rise in inflation, like we, of course, we had this recent report uh, less inflationary, but that notwithstanding, the recent rise in wage inflation and uh, strong employment, those things typically pick out right at the top of the cycle. We don't know that they picked out yet or not, but if you look back at the cycle of 2000 or the cycle of, like, you go back to the year 2000, that's when inflation picked out, Fed was still tightening, even the stock market was already rolling over. 2006, Fed was still tightening as the cycle was picking out, getting ready for a catastrophe. So the fact that we see strong inflationary data today is only somewhat ominous going forward. Now, now you talked about the interest rate momentum being bad for U.S. equities. I mean, is that do you have a, a similar model for the foreign markets? Is it do you? I mean, when I and you talked about Japan and the yen for a little bit. I mean, when I've looked at some of the data recently, at least, you know, the U.S. rates rising is actually one of the best things for Japan because it tends to go with the yen weakness. Um, I don't know if you have a different view on any of the other markets, or is, is are they each relative to their own interest rate market? Do you use the U.S. as a signal for some of the foreign markets? Yes, yes, I agree with you. There is a very interesting um, twist on this thing, especially for Japan, that U.S. rising rates in U.S. are not necessarily bad for for yen because, sorry, for Nikkei because they lead to stronger dollar and Nikkei gets reflective boost from weaker yen, and that has been the story of last year. In fact, actually, the one stock market that I was long throughout 2016 uh, after the original sell-off was Nikkei. And that is, Japan remains my favorite stock market. I have reduced it as of the turn of this year. So I have some Nikkei, but in a reduced portion because I'm cautious on global equity markets. Because I think that if U.S. sells off, then it drags everything down, no matter what uh, points are strong. But I think Nikkei is one of the trades that, if you hold it long enough, will do really well. Hmm. Uh, And so what's behind that, that longer term view on that? Sorry, what is what? what is, what's behind the longer-term view that the Nikkei should do well? I mean, it's been in a 30-year down market where we've been cut in half after one of the biggest bubbles. You see the positive momentum turning around. Is there any other 
fundamental forces uh, that that makes you more optimistic? Well, I think uh, Japan uh, is accomplishing is accomplishing some control over their core inflation, which is always good for stocks. And if there was any deflation caused by commodity prices, it's actually good for Japan. Unlike for the U- U.S., Japan is a pure importer, so falling falling oil prices actually good for the wealth of nation. I think remilitarization and all the military tensions actually good for Nikkei because it might lead to increased military spending in Japan. And I think uh, Japan is in a very good place to take advantage of automatization because they don't have um, labor force, political labor force problem as much as other countries. Yeah, being a leader in robotics, yeah, I definitely see a lot of that there. Um, maybe we have just a few more minutes here as we try to wrap up the conversation. I know one of your other big trades from last year um, that you talked about being a big contributor was China. China is obviously in the news every day today on how is Trump, you know, we're not calling him a currency manipulator. We're using them in in this discussions with, with North Korea. Any just sense of how you, what your thoughts on China are today or any of the politics tied into, you know, how you're, how you think about trading those markets? Well, I think it's very difficult to untangle Chinese politics and the current bilateral politics between U.S. and China, and I would not really dare to try to do that. However, I think there are certain objective facts which remain unchanged, and the fact that China has a huge growth in M2 supply and it has a huge amount of private debt. And typically such debt unwinds happen sooner or later, and they're typically catastrophic. Uh, and usually end up in a very massive currency devaluation. So the odds are still skewed towards China devaluing its currency. I think it's going to happen. However, I think there is a very high chance that for a really long period of time they can do it in a very controlled and mild fashion or even like it trends sideways. The carry is not as negative right now for people who want to be uh, short Chinese currency. So I think it's a good place to stay in the position. But what I have been avoiding over the last few years and what other people have done, and I have, didn't really have enough conviction, is to make deep out of the money bets on like, buy out of the money options to bet on 50, 80% devaluation and complete catastrophe in China. Because China has a lot of means of controlling what's going on in their country. And because they have a lot of policy options and they can implement them in authoritarian fashion, they can really prevent for a long time something they don't don't want to happen from happening. So catastrophic devaluation, I think, is relatively less likely, but it's still it it is there is still a good chance that it's mathematically unavoidable. Well, Alex, uh, always great tra- chatting with you. We talked about a lot of different markets, from equities, from b- to bonds, currencies. Uh, I'll give you one any sort of final closing thoughts as, as uh, we say goodbye. Well, I just think it is a very good market to make money. I think you have to try to avoid uh, dogmatic economic uh, positioning and find for things that are going to work no matter what short-term outcomes are. I think it's just a market which is very driven by politics, more so than it has been probably from the Second World War, and we have to keep that into account, and politics is hard to untangle. Very good. Alex Garevich, he's the CIO of Hante Investments. You can find him online, find him on Twitter. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Alex. All right. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. Uh, we're going to have a uh, second guest coming up, John Martin of John Martin Consulting Services. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Joining me for this half hour is going to be John Martin, the CEO of Martin Advisory and Consulting Services. John has worked uh, for 28 years in the investment industry across a broad field of consulting, research, portfolio design, uh, discretionary asset management. He's been with two different advisors, some of uh, which I believe John has been a client of Wisdom Trees in the past, worked for some family offices, some hedge funds. Welcome to our program. Jeremy, good to be with you. Um, I want to say especially thanks for bringing me on on a, on a day when the markets are closed. Yeah, and people... We, we, we don't have to worry about uh, real-time pricing contradicting uh, some statements that we're making, so that's a good thing. 
No, absolutely. Hopefully more people are in cars listening uh, as, as they're driving here on, on Sirius. Um, what's, what's your sense? Uh, maybe you could give, you know, you, you've worked in, in a lot of different positions. Now you have your own firm, you know, for our listeners, you know, maybe give a little bit more about your background there and, and tie it into what you're trying to achieve at, at Martin Advisory and Consulting. Yeah, sure. Um, Broad-based experience uh, over the years with different asset management firms, um, different institutional and ultra-high net worth consulting firms, which as that industry has evolved, we took over more and more discretionary asset management. Uh, And then also uh, time inside two independent RIAs that were um, primarily managing multi-asset, multi-strategy, uh, multi-manager portfolios for uh, ultra-high net worth families. So it covers the spectrum. Um, what I've decided to do here recently is, is step out of that. I've, I've formed my own shop here um, and, and working with a select group um, of, of clients. This is really a, a B2B sort of a platform. Um, so coming, coming alongside uh, as, as an advisor to assist on Portfolio design, investment process, uh, risk management systems, protocols, um, you know, some strategy and manager selection, and uh, in some cases being uh, an outsourced investment committee member uh, to some independent RIAs and and other institutional groups. So it's going well, and and, uh, I'm enjoying it so far. So you're looking from from a client perspective, you're looking for different RAAs or other people who might like some additional help on on building portfolios and, and could use just an outside set of hands. Is that your sort of core clientele, you would say? Exactly correct. And, and you know, we've had great conversations over the years, uh, particularly when I was inside, uh, you know, one of the institutional groups that was in a division of one of the really large global financial services firms. And, and you know, as um, a, a member of a portfolio team that was designing these large portfolios it was always a problem-solving exercise, right? Um, what's the investment objective? What are the long-term obligations or liabilities? In other words, what's the purpose of the cash flow? And how can we build a portfolio given risk parameters, given liquidity parameters, um, you, you know, a, a, a cost budget or whatever? How can we build that portfolio efficiently and then, you know, in the course of doing that, I know there's a lot of times when, when we would call you up and say, hey, we've got um, a research-based opinion on a particular asset class, maybe a particular region. Um, how can we attack this in a sensible way? And, and you and others uh, that are doing what, what your firm uh, does have, have been really helpful to give us tools to make some smart investments. So. It's all the above. Great. All the above. You know, in the, in the first half hour, we, ha- we talked with um, Alex Gravich, who's really an interesting uh, asset manager, Hante Investments. You know, he, he talked about his, se- his setting up of how he thinks about it. He's just trying to make money, has no benchmark in terms of, you know, these institutional consulting groups definitely come with a much more benchmark-driven type of asset allocation. I mean, how do you think about building portfolios and, what, and contrast what you would think or have seen at the institutional level uh, versus somebody like Alex who's saying, I'm just going to try to make money? Um, where, where do you, you know, how would you try to advise people either listening in for themselves or, or even, you know, an advisory group? Right. Great question. Um, you know, way back in the day when I started in the institutional space, and, and this is, you know, early 2000s, um, we were heavy into alternatives and hedge funds and heavy active, right? And uh, I probably embraced that space a little bit too dogmatically. Um, but we, we live and we learn. And, you know, you can learn a lot just from observing. You watch the markets. You watch your price screens. You look at what's happening. You do the research. You study managers, strategies, track records. You look at all the correlations, so on and so forth. I got to tell you, Jeremy, um, Myself included, and a lot of the people that I used to work with who were heavily into, and this might be a little bit provocative, but um, I think the institutional marketplace, um, large endowments, foundations, nonprofits, it's almost, it's, it's too institutionalized, I think, in some ways. And even investors who back in the early 2000s or the 1990s were 
quick to move into sort of non-traditional uh, different ways of solving problems. Those solutions are so conventional now, and I think one of the ways you see that play out is, has been the mediocrity over the years that's evolved into the hedge fund space. Um, and um, so to, to specifically answer your question, I'm more of an absolute return, absolute risk guy. And, and, you know, I try to look at, you know, how much risk do we want to take? How do we define risk? Is it loss of principle? Or are we just talking, you know, volatility of prices? When you're in the public markets, you're going to have volatility of prices. Um, so, you, you, know, you know, you want to look through that to those underlying factors and, and look at where your exposures are and try to assess what we can accomplish over time. But, um, the, you know, the traditional 60-40 or 70-30 or what have you, I feel like that's a little bit too conventional, and, and I think we can be more innovative uh, in our underlying exposures and more innovative and cost-effective in the way that we design things, and that includes a mix of active, passive, you know, a lot of different um, ways to attack the problem, whether it's equities or fixed income or, or other uh, types of strategies. Uh, so you're bringing up the the hedge fund discussion, and I know uh, you followed along the the conversation we had last week on the program with Ben Carlson and Nir Kesar, uh, who talked about uh, you know the, the bet that they two made on the HFRI, a hedge fund composite index versus the S and P 500. For those just tuning in, we had Nir Kesar who had proposed on Twitter to you know he wanted to bet people for the next 10 years hedge funds were going to beat the S and P 500, uh, and Ben took him on, uh, sort of modeled after this new Warren Buffett bet for much more modest terms, just buying the loser beer uh, 10 years out from, from March 1st. Uh, and you sent me a note. You wanted to, to get in on the bet. What's what's the side that you're trying to join, John? Well, you know, typically, you know, this is, this is like a good case study, um, Jeremy, because it's like, you know, the way you work, the way we work, it's not just the headline index number or, or the headline asset class. It's that we, what do we do? What do you do? We think about what are the underlying components, what are the underlying factors, and how are those how are those underlying pieces going to perform over time? And I think when you have a an understanding or an opinion of those things, um, then you can make an educated guess. So um, eventually, I'll meander my way to a to a wager here. But the first thing I'll just give you some observations on hedge funds is basically what this question allows us to do. Um, but I'll give you some comments and, and thoughts on both sides. So first of all, on the hedge fund side, um, I, I'm really not interested, and, and neither are any of my peers and colleagues that are heavily um, positioned in the hedge fund or alternative marketplace. None of us want to own the average returns. Um, and frankly, if our allocations in the hedge fund space cannot beat the, the HFR indices, then we're not doing very, a very good job because that space has proliferated so much over the last 15, 17 years that it's diluted down the average performance that you can see there. So I'm a, I'm a hedge fund guy, I'm an active guy, but that's not always the solution and the selection is crucial. Um, but here's a, here's a couple other thoughts. Equity long short, and, and I know you folks have a fund uh, devoted to equity long short, there's been a proliferation of options that have become available in the mutual fund space and the ETF space. Fundamentally oriented equity long short uh, in public markets, you know, it's not that it's not that big of an alpha source in the private marketplace. Um, we're seeing a lot of investor surveys that are uh, less enthusiastic about long short equity. So if you ask me what's going to happen over the next 10 years, I think the composition of that hedge fund index will be changing. And I think equity long short, which has been the number one strategy for many years, is going to scale down. And I think what you'll probably see, my preference would be to see complex relative value. I know we're getting into some jargon here, but, but some relative value arbitrage in some complex structured credit, fixed income arbitrage, event-driven credit or equities. I like event-driven because I like it when a manager can take a company through a restructuring and you're not just a price taker in the public markets. You can have an influence on the outcome. I think that's very different. It's, it's closer to like private equity. Um, but, uh, but, but to just be in long short equity in the hedge fund space. So, so my twist on this is, um, I will, I will gamble on the hedge fund marketplace 
if we if if we extend the wager to three categories and we go best two out of three, absolute return, but also alpha against the MSCI all country world because these are global portfolios, and then also sharp ratio. I think the hedge funds might win might win two out of three, but I think that's going to happen for for two reasons. One I've already mentioned, it's a shift to more complex relative value fixed income credit and event driven. But then also, this will transition into a different question here about the next 10 years, and it's more of a macro trade. Anytime we talk 10 years, it's a big thematic trade, right? So I'll, I'll offer one more thing out here, and then, and then uh, I really want to get your feedback on this. We've been talking for a couple of years that monetary policy has run its course, and we're, we're in a time where we're shifting to uh, fiscal policy, but I'd say more importantly, structural reforms. I, I heard your last guest talking about Japan. I love Japan as a long-term trade, um, but but it's it's frankly it's less about the current fundamentals and it's more about the structural reforms. Um, you know, the vision of Abe and others to grow a more shareholder shareholder-friendly culture, stock buyback, increased dividends. You know, Bloomberg had a report last week that said, uh, you know, tax treatment on asset spinoffs, you're going to be able to do tax-free spinoffs over there. Uh, also changes on the tax treatment for restricted stock for management teams. That should change the incentives over there. And if you just ran, in fact, I've probably had you do this. We probably looked on Bloomberg. If we look at different regional indices and look at return on equity for Japan, it's always been low, especially for the last couple decades. The leverage, the debt levels for Japan, very low. Frankly, those CFOs uh, should have more shareholder-oriented uh, incentives. And if they did, they really should be taking advantage of low interest rates. Not to be aggressive and foolish um, with debt, but there's a more efficient way to run those capital structures. Yeah. So besides the underlying fundamentals, I think you got a tailwind there. But the bigger, that, that really extends beyond Japan. I think it's here in the U.S., it's probably across Europe. And so I think we're going to see a virtuous cycle, perhaps, um, that's really policy-oriented, growth-oriented policies that impact incentives for corporations and consumers. And here's the bottom line. If, if we are in a more favorable growth environment, what usually happens, the higher beta equity segments perform. And that means small cap. And that means international over the large cap U.S. equities. And in our whole passive active debate, whenever small cap performs well and international performs well, that's more of a tailwind for active. So I think that would help the hedge fund managers as well. So interesting. Uh, yeah. So that there's a lot. That, get, there's a lot going on there. Um, so you know, the two out of three on the hedge fund bet with Ben and Nir, we'll see if. Uh, if Ben will grant you different terms on two of the three, we could we could talk to him there. Um, okay. and the 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 Japan, you know, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I was trying to see from you know, I talk about Japan a lot as as you and I have, and uh, it was just interesting from from a trader perspective that Alex comes at things with. I mean, it was interesting to hear just different views that, that he had on it. I'm mean, I'm definitely with you on the valuations, the fundamentals, the profitability focus. They're doing more dividends and buybacks, you know, for the first time really ever in a long time. Uh, so there is a lot of positive going there. So Japan has a lot of perfect, you know, a lot of things coming together there, um, you know, that that go beyond just the trading elements that I think that, that Alex was talking about. But let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with John Martin, COO, CEO of Martin Consulting Advisory Services, um, about his different views across markets, this active to passive. Interesting that you think some of the, the small cap international might be one of the boosts to hedge funds, you know, versus just a traditional passive S&P 500 index. Um, what are some of the other, you know, market opportunities that you're focused on? So, you know, small caps and international are, are one. Are, are there any other with, you know, if you think about the international markets outside of Japan, is there anything that, that you're pointing to as, as interesting opportunities today? Yeah, um, I'll highlight a couple things. And, and you know, um, I'm a consumer of research and, and uh, you know, I'm a big believer. Um, just real quick prefacing that comment. Um, as far as economic data or company-specific research um, or sector research, there's so much high-quality research out there. Uh, and I'm a subscriber to different sources. And I'm a, you know, as you are, 
um, you know, avid reader and, and a, I, I say a consumer of all that research. Where I do more direct research is um, researching individual managers and strategies. Um, so what, what I'm saying is that some of these strategy um, and, and market views or asset classes, it's really a consensus of, certainly I have my biases, but it's a consensus of a lot of different research that I'm looking at. And so just to give you a couple ideas, um, and, and we talked about this earlier, um, you know, a couple weeks ago, I think, but just India, I, I like what's happening there. Um, and we're seeing, uh, po- again, positive structural reforms um, that should also flow through to the currency. Um, are we perfect in every one of these market views? Of course not. Time horizons are another question. But if you ask me where I have a favorable, favorable view, India is another one of them. Growing economy, um, you know, pretty good governance over there. It's all improving. And interestingly, you know, India is probably one where, where you can go into that without being currency hedged. You know, the, the currency is probably a, a good uh, risk proxy and a tailwind for you there. It's also, um, it's also one where it's very expensive. We're, we're talking about carry-on. You know, a lot of these these currencies and that uh, that Alex was talking about the first part of the program being why he's short some of these, where the dollar is much higher interest rates in these markets. India is one where it has high interest rates, and that's the the hurdle that you have to do to overcome just to, to offset that. So I'm I'm with you that India would be would be tough market to to hedge there. You know, that's that's really at the top of my list. I'd say Japan, India. Um, but, you know, even as we mentioned, some of these broad brush strokes, um, you know, I think selection is important and, and some of the, uh, you know, some of the underlying specific exposures. But, um, you know, those are a couple that stand out. We, we have two to th- equities. We have two to three minutes left. Um, conversation go quickly. What are you thinking when you when you we talked a little bit about hedge funds versus the market? Um, and, you're, and you're focused on researching active managers as you think about, you know, trying to help, you know, why people would look at, at your firm as a consultant, where do you think your specialties come in in picking the active managers and what, what you're starting to look for for them? Well, um, that's a big question. It, it got um, two minutes. <laughs> yeah, the quickest answer is you start, you, you know, you go in with a blank sheet of paper, you know, a notepad, and you say, who's your client base? What are they trying to accomplish? And it can be very different for individuals than it is for institutions. Um, you know, you're looking again at, at, you know, what's the asset base? What are the future sources of assets? What are the future outflows, liabilities, obligations? Um, and then how do we want to go about building things? And, and you know, that, that boils down to a return objective. You try to think through risk. You try to define risk on different levels. It's not just price, you know, uh, return volatility. There's other factors. And then, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning of this, try to educate clients and, and get them to think beyond the conventional to doing things in a little bit varied way. Um, you know, and just as a, for instance, I don't want the main takeaway to be, you know, John's this crazy, uh, you know, volatility trader, but you know, that might be an example. Let's explore something like volatility as an asset class and think about ways that we can something like that, maybe on a small level into stocks, bonds, cash, what have you. Um, Passive, active, you know, let's look at all that. Um, you know, let's let's secure simple, inexpensive exposures where we can do so efficiently and let's save the the, the risk or rather the, uh, you know, the active management budget for areas where we think it's going to pay off the most. Um, and then, you know, bottom line, understand what you own, position level risk exposure uh, analysis. This is what you guys do. You, you rip apart. Uh, ideas and, and you build, re-engineer portfolios um, that are tailored to very specific exposures. So it's know what you own, position level risk exposures, and really detailed performance attribution to know what's driving your portfolio. Awesome. John, thank you so much for taking the time with us here on Good Friday. Uh, John Martin, he's CEO of Martin Advisory Consulting Services. First part of the program, we had Alex Gravich, Hunte Investments. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. You can listen to us on the Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. 
Thank you.